Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. This episode of the podcast is pretty unique because it's the first time we've had an elected official join the conversation. Justin Amash is a congressman from Michigan, but the reason he's on this episode is not that he's a congressman. Instead, it's because he's really one of the most interesting and principled congressmen I've ever seen. Justin has taken very bold stances that run against his party and ultimately led him to leave his party and strongly considered a third party run for president. We get a window into Justin's life, his background, his heritage as the son of immigrants, and you know his vision for a good society and what America can, can be and can live up to. It's a conversation that's both hopeful and painful because it's amazing that someone so principled and so consistent could succeed in the U.S. Congress, and yet it's a tragedy that he feels compelled to leave because of the problems, both in terms of process and politics, that he's encountered during his time there. Full disclosure, our company has done some work with Justin. We've made the rare exception of our otherwise general ban on working with political candidates to help Justin with his brand and website. So I've gotten to know Justin on a personal level through that process, and it's part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation. So without further ado, I present Justin Amash. So Justin Amash, I I have been a fan of yours for a long time, and you know, there was this wave of freedom sort of oriented libertarian-ish Congress people that swept in in 2010. Um, and you were one of them. And not everybody has sort of remained true to the things they said they believed, but you stand up for that. You've, if anything, you've gotten more philosophically consistent over the years. So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, where <laughs> describe your philosophies? Like, let's start there. Like, you know, how do you think of yourself? I know you've you know, changed your designation formally to being a libertarian as for your party, but just your, mm -hmm. your philosophy, your view of the world, your view of the role of government, you know, what is it? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, you know, I'm a classical liberal at heart. Uh, I, I think that's um, probably the simplest way to describe me. I don't know that I fit into the normal um, boxes, even of libertarianism that, uh, that people think of today. You know, you'll see a lot of libertarians out there and it's just about, you know, uh, shrinking government or eliminating government or, um, I don't know, I find it all a little bit, uh, simplistic at times the way uh, libertarianism is often presented and and I'm more of a, a spontaneous order um, uh, evolution of society sort of person um, when I look at legislation I'm uh, very detail oriented I care about um, yeah, I care about the unintended consequences. I uh, care about whether the legislation works. It's not just about messaging for me. I care about the rule of law 
And to me, that's about um, primarily about equality before the law. And so what does that mean? Uh, that's something uh, you know, that, yeah, yeah. What does that mean? Because I, I know a lot of people, this phrase rule of law becomes an, uh, like a, a, a shorthand that's so rich below <laughs> the surface, but it's, it, yeah. but, but it's actually not super easy to understand when you hear it. You're like, well, do you mean like strong police or like, right. When you say rule of law, what are you talking about? Yeah. Cause um, sometimes people on the, on the right use it to mean like law and order. You, you'll see the president do this a little bit, uh, sort of conflate the phrase law and order and rule of law. Um, and a lot of his supporters will do the same thing. And no, it's not about being uh, tough. It, um, it's not about crime or anything like that. It, it's not any of that stuff. It's about um, this principle that the law should be, well, I, just to paraphrase Hayek, I would say um, general, equal, and certain. Um, and, you know, I, it's, I think that when you look at a piece of legislation, you have to make sure that you're not giving anyone an unfair advantage. Um, you're not discriminating, uh, and, and I mean it not in the um, pejorative way, but you're not, you're not making distinctions on bases that aren't legitimate. Um, so if two people are in similar positions, the law should apply equally to them. It, it shouldn't be that uh, we're going to take uh, two small businesses, for example, and treat one one way and treat another another way when they do basically the same thing. You know, the, the law for small businesses should be equal. It shouldn't be, there should be no special favors. And of course, when you have different types of entities, you might have different laws because they do different things. But within a particular category, the law has to apply equally to those, um, to those items in that category. And so I guess I have a very sort of uh, academic or <laughs> philosophical approach to libertarianism and the way I approach my work. It's not just, hey, let's legalize marijuana and let's, um, you know, end the government and end the Fed. And all. It's, I, I think the rule of law is really at the heart of um, liberty in a under, um, you know, w within a governmental system. And without the rule of law, I don't think you can have liberty. The, how did you um, come to value these, these ideas? Um, you know, it's when you're talking about spontaneous order, you're talking about Hayek. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and we'll dig deeper into these things, but they're, you know, you, you call you just called yourself sort of pretty academic minded in your approach. So yeah, did, you, so. I mean, did you, I read Hayek, did you study? So. Yeah. It's like, uh, <laughs> did you study this stuff in school? Did, did, was, did you, was your dad a wonk and said, <laughs> you know, at an early age here, read uh, the constitution of Liberty. <laughs> like, how did, my, how, like my dad was a poor refugee uh very poor barely went to school uh i mean i think he went to a few grades of elementary school maybe a couple you know a, uh, maybe a grade or two of what we'd call middle school and and some high school um so no um and and you know my parents aren't um you know some kind of they're not even 
college graduates. So um, I, I think my dad spent some time at, um, at like a junior college, a community college. But, you know, they, um, they didn't have that educational background. They're both immigrants. Uh, they came here with not much of an understanding of the specifics of our constitutional system. You know, it's, um, it's like anyone from another country. Like, I don't know the specifics of the, the uh, French system or, or, you know, the Japanese right. system. I know a little bit about it, but, but not the specifics. The same for them. They're, they're not going to know much about it. So, no, I, um, they didn't know about Hayek and they didn't know about Thomas Jefferson or, or any of these people. Um, so I had to uh, develop that myself. But, you know, I was born here. I was born in this country. And I think what made a big impact on my life was just my parents' story, especially my dad's story, coming here as a refugee. Um, even though he didn't know much... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to just ask, like, you know, where was he coming from? You, so when you say your, yeah, he's, your dad was a refugee, he's Palestinian, what does that yeah. mean? Yeah, he's a Palestinian refugee. Um, and, you know, we can get into that a little more. But, you know, it, it wasn't that he had to know much about um, the specifics of American constitutionalism. He loved America. And that's what mattered. You know, I, as a kid, I really sensed how much he loved this country. Um, it was really something. And it, it really made an impact on me. I mean, in a, in a very deep way. I don't think he realized the kind of impact it would make. But it, he used to talk to us all the time about how great this country is. Um, how it gave him an opportunity to, to start a new life because he came here as a, as a poor refugee with nothing. And uh, when he'd take us to school, you know, he might be driving us to school in the morning or something and would remind us of how great this country is and um, how he came here with nothing. And it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your last name is or your religion or your ethnicity in this country you can succeed, you have the opportunity to succeed. And um, that's not to say that powerful. there's not, yeah. And, and he wasn't a trying to imply, message, you know? absolutely. He wasn't trying to imply there was no discrimination or no racism. And of course there's those things. There's those things in every country on the planet, right? Um, he wasn't trying to say those things, but what he was saying is that in this country, you have an opportunity and you can make something from uh, nothing. You can, doesn't matter where you came from. You can make something. It doesn't mean you're going to be the uh, richest person on the planet or the, um, the you know, most famous person on the planet just because you're in America, but you can provide for your family and, um, and you can do it without having to um, depend on some government bureaucrat to, to uh, ensure your survival, you know, getting favors from the government or, or whatever. That's, that's what he taught us as kids, that we can make it, that um, we're good enough. We can make it in this country. And um, I mean, here's, here he's a Palestinian refugee that comes to the U.S. and his son ends up a congressman. <laughs> right. <laughs> With a credible, you know, uh, um, uh, 
you know, profile that could could make a run for the presidency. So, uh, you know, if that's not the American story, I mean, in one generation to see such radical transformation. Yeah, and, and that was um, that was important to me. It was important to me that, uh, and my dad's still alive, and it was important to me that he got the chance to see his son become a U.S. congressman. That uh, a guy who came with absolutely nothing. I mean, um, he was so poor that Palestinians made fun of him. You know, like <laughs> the Palestinian society itself is very poor, obviously. Right. And he was so poor that he was poor among Palestinians. So for him to come to the United States and see his son become a U.S. congressman, I mean, that's the American dream. That, that's it right there. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this is why, uh, you know, uh, when, when I hear people on the right talk about immigrants being a problem, look, my dad came here as an immigrant. He was welcomed by this country. And his son, me, I love this country, you know, as much as anyone in the country. I, I love it so much that I wanted to run for Congress and I wanted to preserve our constitutional system because I think it's so special and so important. So I think um, this kind of thing is beautiful. And if we're welcoming to people from other countries, if we, instead of saying, no, we don't want you, if we say, yes, we do want you, you'll have a whole you know, generation of new people who want to continue the traditions of this country. I mean, I think it's often portrayed like immigrants want to come here to destroy our system. But if, if we are welcoming as Americans to people who come here, they will help us renew our system to keep it going, to uh, provide a new generation of people who love our, our system of government and, and our way of life here. It's always struck me that um, this narrative it, uh, of of immigrants coming here that will radically transform the face of our society uh, aside from being empirically it doesn't pass the sniff test when you look at uh when you look at it like 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 brian kaplan and alex narasta cato have looked at have looked at it have looked at what you know exactly what you've experienced what your family represents and if you if you were to come up with some you know, people talk about, well, we want a merit-based system for immigration. Okay, so in what system you could devise would a dirt-poor Palestinian refugee <laughs> pass yep. the threshold for merit? Yep. And merit, and then you have to ask all these questions right away, right? Merit according to who? And who's going to decide that? And What's that process and accountability for this, these decisions and these rankings and this, um, it just doesn't, it falls apart almost instantly. And, um, or you'll hear people talk about, well, we just need high skill immigration because um, people that don't have high skills are not welcome they've obviously never been on a farm in the United States. So there's that, there's like yeah. fundamental experience issues there. But again, I don't see how so many people, my own 
you know, my own family, when you go back to my great, great grandparents who immigrated from su su Southern Italy with nothing and poverty, like they would never pass a merit test. Like, so yep. these merit tests for immigration got the American story from, from my perspective, the story that, of your family. Yeah. And, you know, skilled people are important. Of course, nobody says skilled people aren't important, but I bring this up all the time with my colleagues, especially my Republican colleagues. They, when they start talking about merit-based immigration, I say, well, first of all, this is like massive central planning. Talk about like, talk about central right. planning. It's deciding we need this particular type of job. So we'll let these people land. Who, who's deciding this? The government? The government's going to decide which jobs we need and who's important and who's not. And I tell them, if you have a merit-based system like you're proposing, my family never would have gotten here. They never would have let my dad in. It never would have happened. And I wouldn't be here as a congressman and I wouldn't be fighting for liberty and, and our constitutional system. I wouldn't be here fighting for it. And, um, you know, it, it, we, if we welcome people, if we make them feel loved when they come here or when they want to come here, if, if, if we make them feel like they can be a part of our society and they're loved and they're cared about they will also embrace our system they will love it uh and i've seen so many examples of this it's not just my family i see examples of this all the time but my dad as you know going back to him he came here he felt that people here would give him a chance unlike yeah back in the old country unlike what it was like over there here he was going to have a chance and, um, and as a result, he worked hard. He, um, he, he taught his kids about how wonderful this country is. He, you know, he raised a, a new generation of Americans, my, my brothers and, and me, he raised us to love this country and to defend this country and defend what it stands for. So um, these are, are beautiful things. These are wonderful things. And uh, I think we need to, um, as libertarians, be talking about these things more, talking about the importance of um, uh, welcoming people and, and the beauty of our system. Um, talk about, so one of the things that I think ended up being a connection between us is that, you know, my wife, Lisa, is from Michigan. And so mm -hmm. Michigan, you know, we've now been together almost 20 years. And so Michigan has, I've, I've adopted it as a, as a state that's part of my own personal story and family and my, and my in-laws who I love and my extended family on Lisa's side. Um, and, and they're all in the Detroit area. Um, tell me more about the, the sort of um, there is a, a lot, I think there's a pretty substantial uh, immigrant population from mm -hmm. Iraq and the Middle East. Um, and it's, it's a unique, um, I don't want to maybe enclave is not the right way to say it, but it's a unique community that not everybody in the, in the U.S. sort of is aware of. I, I wasn't until I came to talk to my, uh, you know, my family, my family in Michigan, they said they, they used words that I'd never heard like Chaldean, which I guess is like, an, you know, a Christian Iraqi and, mm -hmm. um, 
So tell me about that up that, that that community that you grew up in and what you were a part of in Michigan. Yeah. Well, first, I'm from the west side of the state, and and most of those communities are on the east side of the state. So uh, I'm in the Grand Rapids area, and we have a small um, Middle Eastern population. We have uh, particularly a lot of Lebanese people in our community. We have people from Syria and people who are a Palestinian background. So we have people from from those communities um, and we've got Christians and we have Muslims um, both, but our, our area um, I would say is more of a, a, a Christian Middle Eastern uh, population, but very small, like not a, not a large percentage of the, of the community. But if you go to the East side of the state, you do get a big community and you've got big Christian communities and Muslim communities um, from the Middle East and other parts of the world. And uh, it really is uh, a melting pot of people just coming together and everyone is comfortable with each other. They're not, um, you know, I think uh, I, I sometimes hear derogatory descriptions of Michigan because we have a, a big population from the Middle East and it's ridiculous. These, um, these individuals are Americans. They're just like the rest of us. They love this country and, um, and, you know, they, they come here and, and they live like Americans, you know, everyone has their own traditions that they bring from the old country, of course, but they're as American as anyone else. And, um, you know, just like someone who might have an Italian background or, um, you know, uh, a Hispanic background or whatever background you might have, you love your traditions as well from your, from the old country, but you love America. And, um, and yeah, I, I don't think, I think if you stopped into one of the cities on the east side of the state, you wouldn't find it unusual in the least. Uh, you'd find it to be a welcoming place and you'd find a lot of Americans. Americans who happen to be um, from the Middle East originally or their families are from the Middle East, but they're Americans. Um, what was, how did 9-11 shape your experience as a, someone of Palestinian descent, because it, it, that was such a huge moment. I think in so many ways, 9-11 um, in particular changed the course of the United States for the worse. Um, it was obviously, a whole, I mean, I was in New York City for 9-11 and, and, and my wife and I started to date it, uh, soon after 9-11 and we actually uh, we're living in an apartment above an Afghan restaurant on the 75th and 2nd. So, I, I mean, I, you know, 9-11, you know, wasn't an abstraction on television for, for, for me. Um, what, what was that? How did that experience shape, shape you, you know, now going on 20 years ago? Well, it, it had a big impact on me. I mean, it, in many respects, it had the same impact on me that it had on many Americans. Obviously, I was, um, I was, I remember feeling a lot of sadness, you know, just for several yeah. days in a way that, in a way that I've probably never felt in my life other than that period of time. I mean, um, just, I remember there was like a week where I was just like so sad um, every yeah. single day. And, and, uh, you know, all Americans felt that, um, as a, uh, a Christian of Middle Eastern background, I didn't face the same kind of, um, I think discrimination that people of Muslim backgrounds felt, but 
there were differences. Like when I'd go to the airport, I was, um, <laughs> I was double checked every single time, you know, there right, wasn't a right. time I, I remember cause, um, they still wouldn't have I, caught anything because 95% no, of I got, weapons you know, get I, through the TSA, but at least they so pretended to try. Right. <laughs> I got, I got married a couple of years, um, after nine 11 and, um, I remember like when my wife and I would travel every single time I would get checked every single time my bag had to be checked again every single time. Yeah. And she'd go through just fine. Uh, my wife's not of, of Middle Eastern background. So um, there was something going on. There was something going on and that went on probably for, um, I remember that happened for about several years, uh, maybe six, seven years where I, I would say it wasn't until closer to 2010 where things started to subside, where I wasn't getting um, you know, multiple looks every time I went to the airport by the security. And I don't know what the protocol was or what they were doing, but yeah, they were checking my bag. Every, I didn't know, there's be nothing in my bag too. Like, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't even device, there was a lot of things in my bag that would look suspicious, you know, but they're still like, right. hey, we gotta check your bag you know what is this a granola bar you know what is this thing so my my parents they actually this was years ago uh they shut down the atlantic city airport and went full high alert on my parents because <laughs> my dad had i guess uh, several bars of soap in his suitcase and an umbrella and somehow that <laughs> looked like something that was and they they like took my parents and put them in cars and separated them and like took them off site and closed down the airport. You know, my parents don't love to travel to begin with. So this really yeah. <laughs> was not a great, um, not a great experience. Yeah, don't, and, and don't take these RX bars. I've got, uh, I don't know if you know about RX bars, but he take the consistency always sets off the scanners, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, you can now at least buy your way into the travel experience of the nineties. If you get TSA and clear and you can, yeah, that's all, through. you know, that's all a scam though. They're, I mean, right. they're basically changing the protocols on you and then, um, you know, they're, they're making you pay <laughs> for, for service that was like before. So, and well, it's a, and, and, it's you know, a classic how, racketeering job, right? Yeah. Yeah. And how effective is any of it? How effective is any of it? You know, so I can't so, say, um, you know, I, I, I get, <laughs> I get confidential information, so I can't say, but how effective, you know? Well, I know uh, if you want to Google TSA independent uh, tests, you come up with things that should make you feel like this whole thing is security theater. Um, so when you, uh, when did you first start to get very politically minded? You know, when, when did that, when did a system of thought, cause you're very driven by ideas. When did that start to take shape in your life and, and start to animate you to want to take action? Uh, probably when I was eight years old. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I was an unusual kid in many respects. Um, I can't tell you exactly why, whether it was related to, um, like I said, my dad's impact on me or, or my mom's impact. My mom is also, you know, like I mentioned, an immigrant. She's from Syria. Um, so I have, I have two parents of Middle Eastern background. 
I, I don't know if it was the way they raised me, but I was always very anti-authoritarian. Um, I really disliked arbitrary authority. Uh, from, Were you uh, a rebellious from, kid as a result? <laughs> I, you know, I get into trouble in, um, in like elementary and middle school a little bit. I would say I'm, I'm more like my, my youngest child today. You know, I've, I've got three kids and, and my, my youngest one gets into trouble from time to time for, you know, little things, nothing major. Yeah. But, um, but uh, yeah, I just did not like arbitrary authority. I hated when someone who is in a position of power would not lay out the rules clearly and then you'd get in trouble because you violated some rule that they seem to have just made up on the spot um that kind of stuff because i said so (laughs) yeah that stuff really bothered me like i i've told the story before but i remember um my uh you know pe uh, my gym teacher um when i was in middle school maybe and uh, yeah, it was middle school and we used to be able to, um, go into the gym at recess. Uh, if it, I live in Michigan, right? So it's, sometimes it's like too cold to go outside. So they let us, right. <laughs> they, they let us play in the gym instead of going outside for recess and we could play basketball or, or whatever. Well, I remember one recess where I saw a bunch of my classmates. Um, I was always a slow, um, I, I ate really slow at lunch. So I was always like the last one to arrive to the gym. So I was like the last one there. And I, you know, my classmates are in the gym at recess because we're, you know, it was the, the kind of day we were allowed to be in there. And then I see the um, gym teacher come and he starts, uh, you know, telling people that they're in trouble for being in the gym. And, um, you know, he starts giving them, I don't know what we called them, detentions or whatever we called them at the time. Yeah, uh, we had like ninth hour, or zero hour, or something. They had they had a name, and he says, "Oh, you, you guys are in trouble. You know, you shouldn't be in here." And of course, I um, confronted him about it. I said, "Well, you know, was there notice? Like, was uh, <laughs> you know, did, did we we're allowed to be in the gym on this day? Like, this is like a, a day where we're we're normally allowed to be in the gym. Um, why are they in trouble? And they had no reason. Then it was just like they said, "Well, we're." there's going to be some event after school and they need the gym to, to be set up for the event. So we can't have people in here. Why are they in trouble? Nobody told them like, how would they know that they can't be in there? And then I got in trouble for arguing with, you know, with this teacher about it. I, I got uh, you know, a huge talking to, not just by this guy, but, um, and you know, I, I've since uh, I've, I've met this guy uh, again in adulthood and, and we made up and we're, we're friends now, but, uh, um, you took it out quit. back and now you're now you're good yeah yeah we're, we're all fine <laughs> but um you know my my homeroom teacher also gave me the sternest talking to like i was such a horrible human being um according to this teacher because i had challenged this other teacher on um these kids getting in trouble but it bothered me so much it bothered me so much that people would get in trouble for something they weren't even notified about like that that we would essentially right. pass laws and nobody knows what the law is and they're in trouble. And I was a kid at the time and this is what I thought. So, you know, I think 
there are aspects of, of my personality like that that have not changed. Like I've been like that since a kid, since I was a kid. And I've always just had this opposition to arbitrary uh, authority. And that's why when I talk about the rule of law again, I mean, it's something that I've, that's been it's a part deep. of my whole life. Yeah, it runs really deep, like to my childhood. I don't know what caused it in the first place, but it runs really deep. And when, when Hayek says laws must be general, equal, and certain, it's really about this. You know, it's, it's about um, things like notification. Like, do pe are people on notice about the law? Do people, um, is, it, is it applied consistently? Those kinds of things are really at the heart of the rule of law. And, um, and even as a kid, I was aware of it and it bothered me. And I didn't think of myself. It wasn't like I was going around telling other kids, hey, I'm a libertarian or anything. I didn't know what a libertarian was. <laughs> right, right. But, but I knew that I didn't like arbitrary authority. You know, it's funny because um, when, the, when the rules feel arbitrary or aren't, you know, aren't posted or aren't clear or seem like they're getting made up on the fly or getting applied to different people for different reasons. It really under undermines people's faith in whatever that institution is. It, it, it doesn't, it's such a corrosive and destructive thing to have because you didn't look at this gym teacher at the time and say, well, he's an authority, so I don't know what it, I, you know, I don't know why he's saying this, but I trust him. Instead, you're like, I don't think these people know what they're doing. This is all just, you, you know, they've got a bone to pick with us. And, and, it, and I think when we look out into our politics today, you see this kind of nihilism, this, and, and, you, and it's on the left and the right. You know, in so many respects, Donald Trump is the, um, the paragon of political nihilism, the tear it all down, the system is corrupt, it's all rigged. And the thing that's so upsetting is that enough of that is true mm -hmm. that it makes you worried about how do we, how do we shore up the foundations that are good without having those foundations smashed by the people who are angrier than us. Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. And it's one of my biggest frustrations. You know, when I, when I talk about our government being broken, I even understand why people are cynical about what I'm talking. They're like, Justin, if it's like what you say, um, you know, wouldn't other people be saying it or but I kind of understand their cynicism because yeah. um, I, I really, um, I really resent a lot of the stuff Donald Trump does to so discord and distrust myself. I, I resent it, but actually there's a grain of truth in the things he says. And that's why it hits a chord with so many people. And that's why it's so hard to also uh, push for maintaining our systems, which are good and trying to get people to understand that they're just being abused in a way, but not necessarily in the way that Donald Trump says they're being abused. So um, this is always a problem with the media, for example. I think uh, the media do a disastrous job covering politics and covering government. I, I don't even, it, they are in some respects 
the biggest problem right now because a lot of people trust them. They, they're busy with their own lives and they, they have particular media that they trust to tell them the truth and the media are not telling them the truth. And a lot of the times it's not because the media are intentionally being deceitful, but the media themselves are lazy or um, taking shortcuts or biased in ways that they don't even notice. So it's very hard because then you have Donald Trump out there saying, you know, um, fake news about everything and the crooked media. And he might be wrong about the particular thing he's talking about. Like the particular instance he's talking about is not a good example of the media being biased or fake or whatever. But he is right in the sense that there is a lot of problem, a lot of uh, problems with the media. And it's hard then to... It's hard then to um, navigate that. Like, I want to sit down with media people that I respect and know and, and can talk to and say to them, look, you are hurting our country with what you're doing and you're not doing it intentionally. You're just not, you're not really covering the issue. Look at this, um, we had this postal service bill recently, you know, and one side says, oh, um, we've got to pass this bill to stop Donald Trump from, from uh, you know, undermining the post office. And then another, the other side says, oh, uh, you know, this Democratic complaints about the post office is just a big hoax or whatever. When actually, in actuality, both of them are right in some ways, in some aspects of what they're saying is right. You know, one side is exaggerating and the other side's exaggerating in a different way. Um, and then you get this bill that the Democrats want to pass. And the bill is absurdly bad. Like, it, it not only says <laughs> Donald Trump can't do these bad things, it says the post office can't even make improvements if they impact any service. So if any service anywhere is impacted, you can't make an improvement. So it basically freezes the post office in some kind of status quo where you might actually be undermining um, uh, mail-in ballots by freezing the post office in this way. But nobody in the media cares. They don't care. It's, uh, one side says the bill is um, bad for the wrong reasons. The other side says the bill is great for the wrong reasons. They, they don't understand what the bill even does. And it is very hard then for people who, who honestly are leg- trying to legislate. People who read the legislation and cast a vote. It's very hard for us to get people to understand at home what's actually going on and what kind of game is being played and how we might actually correct it. I mean, this bill is not the way to correct it, but there is a problem and we should address it, but it's not going to get addressed. Why? Because the Democrats put forward this ridiculous bill. The media pretended it was, one side pretended it was great, the other side pretended it was horrible. And then we all just move on. We all just move on. The issue doesn't actually get resolved. It doesn't get resolved. It's the same thing with, with um, George Floyd. After George Floyd is murdered, people say, hey, let us reform our criminal justice system. Let's reform policing. Let's address these things. But instead, we get the same crap from the two sides. One side says, we'll put out this phony baloney bill. The other side says, we'll put out this phony baloney bill. But the media present these bills like they're real things. 
like they're like the sides are actually trying to do their jobs when they're not. They're not trying to do their jobs. I introduce a bill that's simple to end qualified immunity, and we can't even get a, a hearing on it. We can't put it on the floor for a debate. All all people like us who care about actual legislating want is put the bill on the floor or put it in a committee. Let us debate it. Let people offer amendments and let's have real votes. Let people vote. And then yeah, we'll, I, go, I wanna... we'll go one item at a time and we'll resolve some things and whatever happens, happens. Like if you put my bill on the floor and it doesn't pass, I can live with that. But you at least gave it a shot. Um, I, I just hate this idea that each side now and the media, the media again, um, promote this with the way they operate. Each side just puts out its own messaging thing. The media says, yeah, I, we agree with that side. The Democrats are good or the Republicans are good or the Democrats are bad or the Republicans are bad. And they just, it's that, it's that simple in their minds. The bill is just like, are you with, you know, humanity or are you against humanity every time, you know? <laughs> and, and then, and then the bill does nothing or doesn't do it adequately, or it's just a, it's a messaging bill, um, or it combines 30 different bills into one bill. And you know, this kind of thing never has the chance of, of getting approved when you combine that many things together. So they do this stuff time and again, and, um, and the media are complicit in advancing it. And there's no good way to resolve it. There's no good way to resolve it from the inside. Um, so I, I want to hone in on uh, these two issues because I think they're so in, they're interesting in two different reasons. And you, you're so unique in being so principled and sort of systematically consistent. But you're an actual legislator. You're in the Congress you are very process driven. So I want to walk, I want to, yes. I want you to help me understand what, what this looks like from the inside. So we have this tragedy um, that appears to be a murder with, or at, at, at the least a sort of negligent manslaughter. I can't speak to whether the guy is racist or not. That's an, that's a, that's a determination of someone's motivations. So I don't, see how you do that legitimately without making a case for their character and jet demonstrating some evidence but this is the world we live in now outcomes to out, outcomes you people jump from outcomes uh through their own ideology to intentions and that's all she wrote mm -hmm. but you actually came out and with legislation with an actual set of specific policy changes for policing so let's just start there. What, what, um, what are the problems with criminal justice that you saw that you sought to address and how did you seek to address them with the legislation? Well, with respect to qualified immunity, it's that a police officer with, with qualified immunity can violate someone's rights, actually violate their rights. The court can find that the police officer violated rights and they're still immune because they have to have violated, um, you know, what's considered clearly established rights. In other words, you have to have some um, court that is in the same, you know, 
that has jurisdiction over over this case and that court has to have previously said yeah this is a a violation of the person's rights so you have situations now where police officers can do some very bad stuff, but because the incident is kind of a um, one of a kind incident, it's the first time incident, it's never happened before, the uh, police officer uh, is immune from civil liability because um, they act like, well, how could he have known that what he did was wrong because there's never been a case on it before? Well, how about just morals and like, you know, knowing that you don't, um, for example, put your knee on someone's neck for several minutes or, or whatever it might be. You don't shoot into a house when you can't see who's in there. Um, there are... There, there's just common sense when it comes to violating people's rights. But now we have to say, oh, well, if there's not a, a previous incident that matches this one, the police officer um, should be held liable because how could he have known? And that's just ridiculous. So are these instances where, um, I want to make sure I really understand the, 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 the circumstances of this, because I've heard this issue, qualified immunity, but, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I, I don't know much about it. Are these instances where the officer has um, violated the law, or when you say they violated rights, obviously, yeah, leading to a man's death is uh, pretty obvious. But can, can you go a little like help help me understand what this means because um, because it's uh, I don't think I fully understand the, all the implications of this i get you know so you're saying if a cop does something that's bad yeah but it hasn't been adjudicated before because you know in that particular court then like they get off scot-free but but um when it comes to how many instances are there of terrible things that haven't been adjudicated like yeah like how big of an issue is this so the the problem is that the um the court, the Supreme Court has laid out rules for this. And it's not, I want to be clear, it's not a doctrine that was written by legislators, right? It's not, it didn't come through Congress. It was invented by the Supreme Court. So already it's, it's like um, the court just made this into law without any legislation. So, that's um, so right. So now, the problem is that the court has gotten to the point where they want, in order for a police officer to be found um, liable and to lose his qualified immunity, the incident has to be so similar to the to some previous fact pattern. So, for example, um, yeah, maybe the guy, like in one instance a guy hid behind, uh, like a police officer was hiding behind a bush. In another instance, the police officer was hiding behind a car. Well, the car is not a bush. So those are different instances. So it can, it can be something like that, something that simple that can distinguish the cases. And then they say, well, the police officer, you know, maintains qualified immunity. You can't, you can't sue him. So this is a problem for people 
And when we say violating their rights, yes, violating the law, um, beating someone up, shooting them, um, you know, uh, false arrests. It could be any number of things. Yeah, I think uh, it's such a difficult scenario because at some level you're saying like, we, you know, we're, we're, I think most people just because of crime television are familiar with the Miranda rights. You know, you have the right to remain silent and all these things. Yeah. But if you're in one of these scenarios where um, somebody is running or somebody's intoxicated or there's some kind of, uh, you know, ambiguous situation uh, i guess the question of who's you know who's where are the rights here i guess is that is that part of the challenge is that it's like the rights are unclear like if i if you're if you're if you are endangering other people and a cop comes in and physically injures you or restrains you or you know are, is the cop the yes the cops violating your rights but if they're protecting someone else from your actions then that's yeah. everything about what cops do falls into this weird zone from yeah from but you got to remember rights you got to remember right yeah you got to remember there's two steps in the analysis so first they'll they'll the court will decide whether the officer violated someone's rights so okay. in a lot of cases um, the court will find that the officer did not violate anyone's rights and you just move on. There's, there's no case then, right? Um, so it, it's mostly a problem, qual the qualified immunity situation is mostly a problem when the court finds that someone did violate someone's rights. So they've already adjudicated it. They've decided that, yes, there is absolutely a rights violation here. We, the court, okay, have decided gotcha. that the rights are violated. Now we decide whether there's qualified immunity because... Um, there's not a, a case uh, that is that is similar. There's a, you know, um, you know, if there's a similar case, and um, and it's been adjudicated, uh, yeah, well, the cop should be on notice that he shouldn't do this thing. But if there's not, the person who is harmed is just out of luck. Even if the court found that the person violated, that the that the officer violated the person's rights, even if the if the court found that the person is out of luck and that's just wrong. That's just wrong. No one so, else has that kind of immunity. And, and when people say, well, officers have to make split second decisions and all, all that. Well, there, the analysis has two steps. So the court already in the, in the initial step, when it's analyzing the underlying constitutional issue, is there a fourth amendment violation? Is there a first amendment violation? It already is considering things like split second decisions. Qualified immunity, this, this second step of the analysis where you look at the, are there any cases on the books that match this case? That's like a layer of protection on top of a layer of protection. So police officers are already protected by the fact that the court is doing adjudication on whether rights are violated. They're already analyzing things like, well, officers have to make split-second decisions, so we don't think this would be a rights violation. We understand that um, in this kind of circumstance, an officer just has to act quickly. So they're already adjudicating that. So when you add the second step, is there a, a previous case that matches it? You're adding a layer of protection on top of the layer of protection. It, you're making it um, extremely difficult for many people to... Um, to have their 
rights vindicated. And, you know, it, it, it's not even that there are um, so many qualified immunity cases that pop up. It's just that when they do pop up, we talked about this earlier, about trust, about having trust in our government, having trust in figures of authority. The problem is right. that in the instances when they do come up, they make the news and people then lose trust in the system. People, especially in communities of color, start to think to themselves, these officers are immune from everything. It might not even be true. It might be the case that if they went to court, they would win against the officer. But they lose the faith that the system works because they see too many of these incidents where someone gets off on qualified immunity and it harms the relationship between law enforcement and communities. And I've talked to law enforcement about this. I've said, there aren't even that many incidents that would, you know, I, I've, I've asked law enforcement, like how many of you, I've brought them into a room, how many of you have had cases where you are accused of violating people's rights? And, and you get practically no one who is accused of it, right? So for most of them who are um, doing a good job, you know, doing their job properly, they right. don't have to worry about it. But by having this qualified immunity out there, what ends up happening is people lose trust in all law enforcement. They lose trust in everyone. They, they feel like if, um, if they go out on the streets and, you know, a cop doesn't like them, cop could beat them up and maybe get off because it never, it, there was no similar incident before. You know, well, did he ever use his, um, you know, elbow to, to like hit someone in the kidney or whatever? Like, we don't know, right? Um, and so you have, to, um, you have to address it because you have to rebuild trust in our communities. So, you, so tell me about the legislation. And because it seems like, it seems like there has been enough bipartisan support for criminal justice reform as an umbrella that this should be an, like one of the few areas where we can cut through the, the sort of party politics, you know, um, mm -hmm. brinksmanship and actually, you know, there was the first step act. Um, you know, I remember like President Obama praising the Koch brothers for being on board with criminal justice reform. Like the, there's enough here that it, it seems like, especially in the aftermath of this very high, high profile event that your bill or something like it should be, have already passed and been signed into yeah, law definitely. to make it. Like how, how, how is it that we're now in August and is it just like, well, we've got to keep this white hot for the election? Like, what's going on here? What, no, what, what does no... your bill do and why hasn't it advanced? My bill does what I, what I have said earlier, which is it, um, it, it takes away this immunity from liability. So it, it's, it's not an immunity to liability that there's no previous case that matches this case, you know, in, in all the essential facts that's not an uh, that doesn't provide immunity to the officer they the like i said the police officers will still be protected by the underlying constitutional adjudication the court is going to look at the law look at the constitution and decide things like 
Did the police officer have to make a split second decision, et cetera? The courts are already going to do that. And many police officers will be protected already by that step. So you don't need this other step. But the reason this kind of common sense thing, and, and by the way, it's tripartisan. We have, uh, I'm a libertarian. We've got a Democratic lead sponsor, Ayanna Presley. We've got uh, a Republican on, on the bill, Tom McClintock. And, um, and Senator Braun actually tried to introduce something similar, not as good, but similar in the um, Senate. And he's a Republican. And he just got, um, you know, pilloried. He just got like, <laughs> he took massive abuse from the right. Uh, he went on Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson took him apart. And then, you know, he, 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 he walked away with his tail between his legs, you know, just you know, kind of sad and basically renounced his own bill, you know, because of the, the, the onslaught of right-wing media attacking him on this. But it's, it is common sense. It's just that you get these guys like um, Tucker or anyone on, they get, they get, they're on TV and they're just misleading people about what the doctrine is. They're misleading people about how it works. And I'll, I'll be on Twitter and people will say like blatantly false things about how qualified immunity works because they're told, um, they're told things like, oh, if someone violates someone's rights, there is no qualified immunity. That's not true. That's not true. In fact, the, the times it's a problem is when someone does violate someone's rights. That's why qualified immunity is a problem is because people's rights are being violated. The court is even saying the rights are being violated and then there's still immunity. But people don't understand that generally. And, and so you have this pushback on, from the right. And I think that it's mostly people who genuinely misunderstand it. So I would say like, 95% of it is people who genuinely misunderstand the doctrine and misunderstand how it works. And then 5% of the pushback is malicious. In other words, it's people who want the doctrine Should to know better. They know better. They know how it works. They understand that what they're saying is false in describing the doctrine, but they don't care because they have an agenda. They want to keep this doctrine in place. It, it matters to them for one reason or another. And, um, and I don't want to get into like their motives for it, but you know, for one reason or another, they want to keep the doctrine in place. And I think, I think it's unfortunate. And I, this happens on issue after issue where the public is um, deceived into believing something. And then most of them are just making an honest mistake. Like you can hardly fault them. They're coming on Twitter and they're telling me I'm, I'm wrong about qualified immunity because they heard it from someone on TV. And they don't know that the, it's that what they're saying is wrong. The person on TV who told them probably does, but they don't know that what they're repeating is false. And there's no way to really to get through to them because they trust that person. Right. So, so you have people on the right who push back on things like this. And then on the left, you know, they don't, I, I want to be careful because I do think many of my colleagues on the right and the left care about these things. They care about these issues, but particularly in leadership positions, say the speaker of the house and the, and the minority leader and, and people who are in positions of leadership, they might care about things like this too, but they care more about their jobs. And that's pretty clear. 
They care more about maintaining positions of power. They care more about political messaging that will help them get elected again or, or maintain a majority or get a majority. So for someone like the speaker, and I've criticized all the speakers, I've criticized Republican speakers and I've criticized Democratic speakers. So for anyone listening to this who's a Democrat and says, you only criticize Pelosi, I've criticized them all. In fact, I, I uh, was part of a coup attempt against John, John Bader. Um, yep, yep. So, so like we, you know, we've tried it all. I've criticized them all. Someone like Speaker Pelosi understands that it is, for, from her perspective, better to pretend you did something than to do something. So Why? it is better because if she puts together, let's say she actually puts together something, some reasonable bill or package of bills on criminal justice reform. And it's so reasonable that Republican senators have to go along with it, right? It's very reasonable stuff. Makes sense. Everyone agrees to it. President Trump may well sign that thing. And then he gets credit for, for dealing with this criminal justice issue or this policing issue. And for um, people in charge, again, I'm not criticizing rank and file Democrats on this or rank and file Republicans, although there are within those groups, many people who have, you know, you know, a bad approach to government. But the people in leadership understand that it's better to leave this issue out there, especially on the Democratic side, because the, the tendency is for people to think that the Democrats are better on this issue anyways, on criminal justice reform. So if the Democrats can put forward a bill that looks like it's doing a whole bunch of stuff, even if it's not, like, for example, they, they claimed in their bill that they were ending qualified immunity, but it was like a uh, drastically modified version of my qualified immunity that um, exempted a lot of people. So mine would apply to all government officials and they wanted it to apply only to uh, like police officers specifically, like, you know, on the beat, just, you know, not even like, um, not even like prison guards, for example, they wanted to exempt prison guards. So, so why would you? Because <laughs> I they have to imagine because, that the prison guard you, union plays a role in, here's, in here's that why. exemption. Yeah, here's why they can do it. Because nobody cares what the bill says. They know that. Like Nancy Pelosi knows no one's going to read the freaking bill. They're going to go on CNN or MSNBC and they're going to say, this is what we're doing. We're doing all these great policing things and we're ending qualified immunity. And CNN and MSNBC are just going to repeat the line. They're going to say, yeah, they're ending qualified immunity. No one's going to look at the qualified immunity provision. Not one person, not one journalist who is a mainstream journalist who's going to you know, get wide coverage is going to actually go read the bill and tell people what it does. They're not going to do it. And so they can get away with it. And so you have Pelosi, you can say, I'm putting together this huge package and we'll stick enough things in here that Republicans won't like. So we know it never goes through the Senate and we're just going to pass it. And then we're just going to forget about it. Nothing's going to become law. President Trump will get no credit for having signed anything to law. We don't have to compromise with the Republicans. We'll just say that they're bad people 
and we'll move on. We did our thing. They did their thing. Our bill's good. Their bill's bad. That's it. End of the story. And this is a, a terrible way to run a House of Representatives. And I'm not trying to, um, again, give a pass to uh, McConnell. McConnell is a total disaster. I don't, I don't work in the Senate. McConnell could be worse than Pelosi. I don't know. I don't work there. Okay, I work in the House. So I'm not giving a pass to McConnell. From what I've seen, McConnell is a disaster, a total disaster. But who cares? What, it, it, it's, you have to look at your side. You have to look at your own side, not just the other side. You can't always pick on the other side and say, well, the other side's bad, so we can be bad. You have to, you have to say, if you really want to fix things, you have to say, who cares what the other side is doing in this instance? We'll do the right thing. And then we can call them out legitimately for doing the wrong thing. Instead of this play acting that always happens where, um, you know, we'll, we'll do the wrong thing. And then we'll say, we're doing the wrong thing because they're doing the wrong thing. If we get called out on it or we'll do the wrong the, thing. What and, about, what about ism? Is yeah. The, what about him? And, and then, or we'll do the wrong thing. And we know that our media will cover us in a positive way. And who cares that the other media covers us in a negative way? Cause our base will listen to our media and we have, you know, they'll vote for our people will still vote for us. So, so look, on criminal justice and policing, you have messaging bills that pass the house you have and, and the Senate and that's it. They just, they're dead. There's nothing else that's going to happen with them because there's no interest in moving them forward. And I, I pray that I'm wrong. Like I, I would, it would be a, a dream if Pelosi in September said, Hey, good news. We're going to, we're going to start up and um, I've changed my mind. We're going to move forward with some criminal justice bills or policing bills. And we'll have a whole variety of bills and we'll put them on the floor and we'll allow, allow amendments and we'll just let the legislative process work and we'll see what happens. It would be a dream, but it's not going to happen. And it's because it doesn't advantage her. It doesn't advantage her caucus from her perspective. And um, McConnell has the same thing. Look, I'm not here to excuse McConnell. Um, McConnell on issue after issue there's an advantage for him not to proceed with something or to put together some phony baloney bill and then pretend he's done his work. They, there is so much incentive for the people in positions of power to do this crap. And the only way it's going to change is if the public starts caring about these issues. And that's what makes this job so difficult. Um, and why, you know, part of why I'm, I'm leaving Congress because on the inside, it can't be fixed. I've tried. It can't be done. I'm not the only one who's tried. Other people have tried too. It cannot be corrected from the inside. So um, I, I wanna, I've got a couple other questions about this, this, this sphere because it's such an interesting and important one. And it's, 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 what we, it's at the heart of, you know, we still have protests going on around this country right now. So you have these stalled bills. So, my, so one question I have is, I know the first, I'm not an expert on the first step act that was passed, um, I guess a, like about a year and a half ago, December 20, mm -hmm. 2018, I think. I, don't know. I, it, I have um, a hard time remembering those dates too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I, I understand that it, it did have some pretty important improvements for 
reentry and for things and for, for for good stuff for people, especially people who are incarcerated. Um, and I know like Van Jones was, uh, you know, one of the actors trying to advance this sort of in a bipartisan way. So um, you're obviously you were there for this, this, this legislation. How did that legislation get passed? Because is it a counterexample that this was something where it got through this crucible that you've laid out? And why well, that then, but not this now? Well, at first it was earlier in Trump's um, term. So I, I think at the time, there was still a sense that, you know, I, I think some of the politics hadn't come into play that the way they've come into play now as you get closer to the election in terms of at least criminal justice reform bills. And I, I actually think Democratic leaders have seen how Trump ran with the First Step Act and keeps saying he, he got criminal justice reform done as he frames it. I mean, the First Step Act really was just a first step. There is a lot more and <laughs> right. um, it's important, but it doesn't deal with the underlying problems. You know, it's, a, it's sort of a, a Band-Aid in many ways. Um, the underlying problems is the underlying problems relate to our laws themselves, right? You, you have to deal with the actual laws, which we keep passing. We keep passing new laws to criminalize things. And, um, and if that's not addressed, you, well, you're going to keep putting people in prison. But I, I think earlier in the term, there was maybe a sense that this kind of stuff um, could be worked on together and maybe uh, more openness uh, on both sides of the aisle to working together on, on this kind of thing because it wasn't drastic, because it was pretty basic and there was a pretty broad consensus um, uh, for these you know, smaller changes related to um, sentencing and, and you know, whether, uh, whether someone could get out early or, 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 or that kind of thing. So I, I think we're just in a, we're in a different place now um, but again, the fact that Congress is broken, like people often use counterexamples. They'll say, well, the first step act got passed or this other thing got passed and it'll be like, you know, from seven years ago. And I'll say, well, of course, every once in a while, some kind of miracle happens and something does get through. And, um, and it's usually the most watered down version of the thing. It's not, it's not like, uh, it's not a version of it that, that does um, what the, the real advocates want it to do. You know, those who are real criminal justice reform advocates or advocates of whatever other issue. But some watered down thing might get through every once in a while. But that's not why we're sent to Congress. It's not so that every, you know, five, six, seven years or whatever, something small gets changed um, that tweaks uh, uh, a problem that's been building up over the years uh, because every term multiple bad things happen multiple bad laws are passed and then and then one <laughs> good thing happens every once in a while so you take like you know you take one step forward with uh, a bill like that and then you take five steps back and um and so uh, on the whole, if you look at the, you know, the progression of the whole thing of, of Congress and laws, you just see things moving in the wrong direction. And, and how do the bad things pass? Well, the bad things pass uh, 
um, often they're just stuffed into um, a massive appropriations bill that you know everyone's going to pass or an authorization bill like related to defense or something you know something that they call a must pass bill they will stuff a lot of bad stuff into those bills or we have suspension bills that um will incrementally make our laws worse and these are bills that are treated as non-controversial and they're brought up under suspension of the rules and they're often passed by voice vote even no one's even in the chamber and you'll have a gradual, and it takes a lot of these before you know it starts to get really bad because most of them are are minor, but some of them do significant things, and can have a big impact. And there have been times where we've had to um, rush to the House floor to demand a recorded vote on something that was going to pass under suspension, to prevent it from becoming law because it would just pass under suspension here, and then it would go to the Senate and pass, you know in their expedited process, whatever it is over there, and then be signed by the president. So you, sometimes you've had to go to the floor and stop that kind of stuff. But my, my point is, a lot of bad stuff builds up. Most of it is unnoticed. It's stuffed into large bills that are must-pass bills, like an appropriations bill or an authorization bill. Um, or it passes on suspension and it's unnoticed because it was voice voted. Like nobody was even there to, to know about it. Um, and, and, and nobody read it really. So you have so many little steps in the wrong direction and then you get one small step in the right direction and you, know, you can sort of see the direction things are taking. So, you know, when you look at change over time, so, so, so there's a couple ways I think about this and some, some feel more nihilistic than others. So the most nihilistic way to look at this as a classical liberal is to say, well, this is the nature of government. This is sort of public choice economics. It's, you know, people are self-interested, especially including Congress people and like yourself. And, uh, yep. you know, the further up the power you go, you're just going to do these things and log roll and, and, um, and, you know, there's this, sort of perverse incentive to actually keep problems in place because they allow you to demagogue about them. So you, you know, I think the most, in a way, the most outrageous one is around immigration, which we've already talked about a little bit, where you, you, know, you had uh, George W. Bush um, and, and uh, other, um, and a bipartisan sort of coalition put, to, put forward immigration improvements that were not perfect, but they would have been better. And it gets killed by Democrats and Republicans. And then you have Barack Obama have total single party control for two years, mm -hmm. claiming to care about the issue. It's the first two years of your presidency. So you're in the best position to try to get things to happen before the election starts to make everything hyper politicized. Didn't do anything about it. And then instead did the deferred action, um, you know, DACA, which was not legal. It was just a sort of weird executive dictate that wasn't law. And even if it was good, which I think it, it was good as a moral issue, but illegal nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, cynically, you can just say, well, this is great. You get to pretend you're doing something. You keep this structural problem in place. So you have a sort of aggrieved, legitimately aggrieved population that can be exploited for votes and demagogued when the when 
your political opponents do things like Donald Trump does, which is like offend immigrants at every turn. Um, and uh, so, so it's all just sort of like this cynical self-dealing hellscape. Mm -hmm. That's one angle. There's a lot of truth in that. But then it does seem like we've had periods in our, in our past, you know, and maybe they're romanticized, you know, uh, the Reagan working with a democratic Congress or even Clinton working with the Gingrich Congress, who was already starting to be way more sort of post 24 hour news garbage style. Um, so it seems like it has gotten worse. It seems like American governance has gotten worse. You know, is, is that true? Is it rose colored so, glasses that Tip O'Neill and Reagan weren't as good friends as we think? Like what's your take on the, like the bigger, the, 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 the change over time as, as you kind of look at it? It's, I think it's worse in many ways and better in many ways. So hmm. it's, hard to, it's hard to go back in time and figure out what happened. Um, you know, when you look back on history, a lot of times it is romanticized, as, as you said, um, you know, relationships people had. Oh, can you, can you imagine... You know, if we were back in those days when people got along and all that, and, and you know, people do this even with um, political figures, yeah. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, John McCain's a hero to all the Democrats and, um, <laughs> and, and Mitt Romney, you know, like, it, well, it, former and former and <laughs> dead <laughs> opponents always have such better opinion. It's like, right. All of a sudden, George, George W. Bush is like one of their favorite presidents, you know, it, so, so, so people have like, this I, I you know I, I fear for the day when we're like oh remember the good old days of Donald Trump um, you know these scary times but uh, but Up I think to people... charred hellscape run by zombies <laughs> right right that, <laughs> so so I think there is this tendency to romanticize the past and say how great it was um, but with that said things are worse now in many respects but but let me talk first about how I think the the past is worse I. I think that um, we are far more transparent today about what's hmm. going on in government. I think people know a lot more about what goes on, even though they still don't know nearly enough. And I've talked about that before, how the, the media manipulate this stuff. The media describe what's in a bill and what they're describing is not at all what's in the bill. But at least we have access to the bill today. Like if you want to read it, if yeah. you sitting at home want to read it, you can. You can just look it up on your phone. And that's an advantage that we have today, that we do have more access to information. There's more transparency. And I think back in the old days, there was probably a lot of um, backroom dealing that we would find totally unsavory, that uh, we today would say this is totally corrupt. Uh, people trading votes. I'll vote for this, you vote for that. Um, maybe even uh, lots of immoral things happening. Um, it, tr trading things outside of the legislative system in exchange for legislation. Um, it could be money, it could be sex, it could be anything. You know, there could be all that kind of stuff going on in the past that we just didn't know about. And today, yeah. things are more transparent and we're more aware of what's going on. I think that's important and that's good. 
With that said, transparency itself, I think, has caused a lot of negative effects. So I don't think I would have said this 10 years ago, but I've seen it now, having worked in Congress, that the openness of the whole thing has made it so theatrical. So it's, it's gone, it's like the opposite. In many ways before what you had was like, there's this hidden thing called Congress and nobody knows about it. And there's, there's some you know, rich guys who get together in smoke filled rooms and they figure stuff out. And nobody really knew much about it. And in, in some ways, like I said, that produces many bad outcomes, like a lot of, there's probably a lot of corruption, but maybe there was a lot of compromise too. Maybe it also produced, because it wasn't so um, celebrity oriented, maybe there was actually a lot of compromise that also happened in a system like that. Whereas today, it's so theatrical. The whole thing is an elaborate form of performance art. I look back on a congressional term and I do think to myself, boy, that was just pure theater. Like there are different people who play different roles. Some people, depending on which side you're on, someone's the villain and someone's the hero and, and they go through the motions and they tell us they did this thing or that thing, but actually nothing really happened. Nothing. It's just like a soap opera there. There was actually no, you know, it's like um, Stefano from Days of Our Lives uh, coming back and, and haunting, Mar yeah, haunting Marlena for like the, the, the 30th time. Like, you know, nothing happened, right? Um, so it just, it's like on um, this repeat where I just keep seeing the same thing over and over and it's, it's never ending. It's like an episode of black mirror um, and not a good one. And I, um, I think that today it's, like I said, it's become so celebrity oriented, so, the so theatrical that people can no longer operate in good faith in the way maybe they could before, aside from, like I said, the secret corrupt deals or whatever, you know, there's still corruption, but maybe alongside that corruption today, there's just um, in many respects, it's a different kind of corruption, but it's still corruption. Um, back then there was corruption probably along with some compromise today. There's very little genuine compromise. Um, most of what is called compromise today is what I would call deal making not really compromise, but, um, you know, you want this thing, we want this thing, we'll both get our things. You know, it's, right. it's, not, it's not like you want this thing, I want it, we'll go somewhere in the middle. It's, we'll give you all of your thing, you'll get all of your thing, um, and, you know, we'll spend everyone's money and, and live happily ever, ever after. We'll tell our, our people we got our thing. Um, and it's not going to be all the yeah, things, we'll, but it'll be, it'll be all of something. It won't be all the things that one side wants or the other side wants, but it'll be all of one thing. And, um, and that's why uh, when you occasionally see uh, a deal, like on a, this is particularly true on appropriations, like there's not, honestly, there's not that many deals that happen anymore, but you occasionally see it on appropriations bills. And when you see it, it's usually uh, each side get its, gets its own bad thing, and then we move on. 
Yeah, there's a um, I'm thought there's a bunch of different things that come into my mind from what you were laying out there. So the t two recent books that um, have had a big impact on me uh, on this front are um, Martin Gurry's The Revolt of the Public and um, Yuval Levin's A Time to Build. And they sort of are complementary to each other in the sense that like, when you were saying that you know, tran the transparency has um, had this sort of downside. You know, you've all talked about exactly this, that, you know, you, you now have um, sort of a, a personal brand free agency in government among elected officials where it's all just, it is, it's all theatrics. It's all using your position as a platform to build your personal brand so that you can eventually um, do what, a lot of our elected officials like to do, which is become incredibly wealthy in ways that none of us can understand. Like I, I heard recently Joe Biden's worth over a hundred million dollars. He's been in the Senate since he was like in his twenties. Like where was the Biden movie that made him a hundred million dollars? Like, how does this happen? Um, you know, uh, these populists, Elizabeth Warren's worth tens of millions of dollars. These things are, and I don't fault people for being wealthy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I am Mr. Capitalism, but it seems like if you're just, if, 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 if our public institutions have just been turned into a popularity contest for personal gain and sort of, uh, and a reality show <laughs> led by a reality show president, of course, it's nothing's going to work. But then I think the other thing, this is that, so that's like, you know, lines up a lot with what you were just saying. I think the other thing that I found incredibly interesting about the work of Martin Gurry is this notion that the transparency has given rise to this nihilism. So you see the way it's actually in a way, the way he puts it, which I think is true, is it's this sort of toxic combination of a generation that has been pitched on the all-powerful sort of, um, uh, you know, a modernist government that can centrally plan our society into equality and happiness and perfection, and and we can tackle everything. We can eliminate all the all of your problems. And the only reason why we haven't done it is because can't you see how corrupt all these people are? So the transparency sort of strips our leadership of its of its um, of its clothes, and the emperor has no clothes. But rather than saying, like a libertarian looks at that and says, "Well, yeah, because government's kind of this lumbering, racketeering, mobster leviathan," so of course it's going to kind of suck. How do we tie it down like Lilliputians? But that's not the narrative Americans have been have heard for generations. We have like New Dealism. So everything's a new deal to remake society. And when it doesn't work, it's because the system is rotten to the core. It, you know, do you agree with that? Do you feel like that's part of the problem is we've got such a gap between the, the rhetoric and the expectations of what government can do and the reality of what government actually does and how it actually works? Yeah, I mean, I... I get so many perspectives because I, you know, I've been a very independent member of Congress and I've heard it all from every single side. Um, I think that there is 
a tendency to um I think, well, there are differences between the left and the right on how they view the problems of government. Um, that's for sure. Uh, on the left, there's a tendency to believe that it is just some, it's kind of ironic in some ways, that it's just some bad apples. Um, and if we can get rid of those bad apples, typically the Republicans or Donald Trump, then the government will work perfectly. And um, the, the reason it doesn't work is because these bad apples are undermining the system. The system works perfectly, but these bad apples are undermining it. And it has nothing to do with any of the structures. It has nothing to do with any um, sort of systemic dysfunction. It's just some bad apples, a few bad apples. And then on the right, you tend to hear more of, well, the whole thing is rotten and crooked. And that's why we need Donald Trump. Because, <laughs> because um, everyone's bad, including Donald Trump, but at least he'll be bad for us. Like he'll, he'll be our bad guy, you know? He will, he will go and he'll do bad things on our behalf. And that's better because the whole thing's crooked. So your only choice is, will the other guy, will the other team's bad guy do the stuff or will our team's bad guy do the stuff? And we'll take our team's bad guy. And, and I think that is very much um, what's developed today, I see, between the two parties, between the two sides. It's not to say that everyone believes those things on e either side, but that is a pretty dominant theme among the politically active and um, would you and, say um, that you're I, I, I think your depiction of the left saying, look, government basically can do good. We just need to get good people in good people. Well, government, people well, agree with you know, us. government. See, I because I think they, they sometimes misconstrue what I'm saying. Government can do good. Nobody like um, unless you're an anarchist and there are some people who, um, you know, would say they fall within the libertarian realm of would call themselves anarchists or describe themselves that way. Um, I'm a classical liberal. I believe in a, a free government. I believe that you should have a government that, um, that works properly and that government can be good. It can be a good for society. If yeah, it protect functions, people's rights, right. If it functions properly. So nobody's, uh, at least the vast majority of people who describe themselves as libertarian are not against the existence of government or um, having a government or a good government or any of that stuff. They, they want a government that works within its, its proper um, place. In other words, the federal government handles certain things. The state government handles certain things. The local government handles certain things. Your family handles other things. You decide certain things. And you have separation of powers. You know, you've got different branches of government. You have checks and balances. These are the things that most libertarians want, okay? It's not no government. It is, in a sense, a good government. But I think what a lot of um, people on the left that I hear, uh, at least on Twitter, I'm, look, it's not most people in the country, but it's the people who are politically active. Right. They will say things like, oh, the system is fine. Nancy Pelosi is so wonderful. And if only you got rid of McConnell and Trump, 
the whole thing would work swimmingly. Never mind from that. They don't care, for example, that Pelosi hasn't allowed us to offer an amendment on the House floor the entire time she has been Speaker of the House this term. The entire time. And the only other Speaker of House in history who's done that is Paul Ryan. So Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi, in terms of process, the two worst speakers of the House in history. But from the perspective of many people on left Twitter, if only we got rid of McConnell, who I will concede is, is I think, a bad guy. Okay, I don't think he's doing good stuff for our country. But they think if only you got rid of McConnell and if only you got rid of Trump, who I also am not a fan of pretty clearly, that the yeah, whole thing would work no perfectly. Doubt. Like Pelosi's got it all. Don't worry, Pelosi's got it handled. Um, she's, she's an angel. She's doing it all right. No, Pelosi is a disaster herself. And it, it's, it started, you talked about Newt Gingrich and Clinton. It started around that time that I think Congress really became a lot worse in terms of how it functions. Um, in terms of uh, the ability for people to participate, it became very top heavy. It, it used to be more dispersed. The power was more dispersed among the body. So when you had 535 members of the House and Senate, you had a more, um, uh, there was greater equity or equality in terms of power and in terms of their ability to affect change in the system. Nowadays, the power resides almost totally in the top leaders. And it could be the Speaker of the House in the House or the Senate Majority Leader in the Senate. It resides in those people. And if you're not one of those people or someone closely associated to those people, like in their small circle, you have no power. You are just a pawn. You are just there to push buttons that you're told to push. And if you don't push that button the way you're told to push it, you will be in trouble. You will lose your committee assignment. You'll lose your chairmanship. You'll, um, you'll lose your fundraising. We will defeat you next election. They will come after you. Um, there is no autonomy for rank and file members anymore. They're really just um, extensions of the speaker's will or um, the Senate majority leader's will. Again, I don't work in the Senate, so I can't speak to all of the workings of the Senate, but you can see some of it on TV. But I'll, I'll, speak, yeah. about the, I'll speak about the House. You know, the, the speaker's will dominates. The speaker's will dominates the committees, dominates fundraising, dominates everything. And if you don't align yourself with the speaker and you're a Democrat, you are in trouble. It's not going to work for you. And you, you'll occasionally get occasionally someone like AOC who through whatever reason, uh, but you have to, you have to credit maybe her personality or, or whatever it might be. She has something that allows her to break free a little bit from the leadership. And, um, and you have Thomas Massey in the house, Justin Amash, of course, you know, like I've been able to break free from leadership, but there are not that many Bernie Sanders to some extent as well. There are not many people like that though, who can break free and sort of chart their own course because in order to do it, 
you have to be able to survive on your own politically. You have to be, you have to be able to survive a system that every day is coming for you. And that's very difficult to pull off. So if you look at 535 members of the House and Senate, you know, it'll be like 520 of them or 525 out of the 535 are just going to go along. They're not really going to break from the pack. You'll see, okay, you know, one time someone in the Freedom Caucus says something, but really they're going along. Like if you look at the vote records, how often do they align with Kevin McCarthy? It's pretty, pretty high, you know? They're aligning with him more than they're aligning with me or more than they're aligning with Thomas Massey. So, uh, so you know, it's not many people who can really break free. So it's interesting because when I look at the dynamics there and, you know, and you spoke, spoke about sort of the rise of the sort of more radical, uh, the radical voices, whether it's AOC and it's interesting with what's happened with Bernie Sanders, because, you know, in every reasonable respect, he's a radical voice. And he almost got the nomination for the, for the, for the Democratic Party's for, for president. So there's been something that's happened on the left um, where there's a, there seems to be a larger share who don't, who, who aren't the, um, we just need to get people in and the system basically works crowd, sort of center left, but there is a um, coalition, AOC, uh, Bernie, mm-hmm. the sort of, um, intersectional coalition of that focuses on identity politics and and really you know says we got it we've got to remake the system we need to have democratic socialism we need to you know eliminate all these other parts of the sort of structures of our of our checks and balances whether it's the filibuster or more radical things like the uh, the the electoral college my perception is is that that voice on the left side has a much larger mind share than, and that on the, I I don't consider libertarianism as a philosophy to be a right of center philosophy. Uh, You know, if you take, I think the right left stuff, which goes back to the sort of, um, you know, the the French um, legislative body in like the 1700s or whatever it was, you know, it's not super helpful, but, there was a time in 2010 when the, the, where you and Massey and others, the sort of Tea Party movement, which was reacting against the bailouts and the Affordable Care Act sort of, um, high, you know, really dubious approach to healthcare. Um, you know, you had a real, you had what seemed like a real libertarian moment where maybe the Republican party was going to look, look and sound more like Ron Paul. You got Rand Paul in the Senate and is, and that has shrunk. And now you have this sort of Tucker Carlson populist nationalist stuff. National, national populist basically. Yeah. And, um, and they sound like Elizabeth Warren only angrier. You know, they, they don't like big corporations. They don't like free trade. They don't like immigration. They say they like capitalism, but those are all really important pillars of capitalism, the free movement of people and goods and labor and tr- trade. Um, what is happening there? Is it, do you think it's that 
in opposition that that more sort of philosophically consistent voices get louder so trump's in office therefore the farther the the more far left sect is going to be louder now and if we get biden harris and and single party democratic governance that you know there's going to be a counter revolutionary energy on the political right I, I, the thing that worries me the most about that is increasingly that doesn't seem like it's going to be a tea party-ish libertarian small government it's going to be right this sort of neo-european mutant demon that's been yeah i, <laughs> been, I think I, i've said brewing. that for years. yeah i've been warning since um since i got into congress i've been warning people that we are headed toward a more european style um political you know dynamic where you have sort of a nationalist right and a socialist left and that's not so lose, how lose right it's lose lose so our our country used to be you know you had uh what i would call a a, a progressive left but not socialist you know and you had a, a right that was more uh capitalist uh, free market oriented um and you know for restraint in government or reducing spending and those kinds of things. Yeah, we've moved away from that. And I'm not sure it's coming back anytime soon. Um, and and I this mean, is just not as to a say, snapshot. I, I, I want to yeah, say that please. I don't think it's most Americans who are in these two camps that exist. Most Americans are not socialists and most Americans are not nationalists. They're not in these two camps. Um, this is a, a minority of Americans. It's maybe, it could be when you combine them, it's like 30% of the country or something like that. But I would say two thirds of the country is kind of, um, what I would call, um, moderate liberals. Um, and I mean, liberal in the more classical liberal sense, um, you know, somewhere between, uh, a classical liberal like Justin Amash and someone who's more of a progressive as well, but not a socialist. I, I think most people are in that zone. They're not in the extreme socialist or in the extreme nationalist zone. But um, when you look at media, like you watch TV, uh, the camps are pretty, you know, they're split like that. The primetime Republican TV watching is a uh, populist nationalist stuff. And the primetime uh, democratic stuff is socialist. I mean, it's, it's what it, it's, they might not call it socialist every time because there are still people on the left who don't like to use the word, but it's basically in that direction. That, uh, yeah. And, and I mean that I remember, you know, in our film, the pursuit, we use a clip from this. Uh, there's an inner, there was a town hall where an NYU student, noted that in a recent poll, 51% of uh, young adults, millennials, um, no longer identified as capitalists or had a, you know, 51% had a negative opinion of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And, and this was- and a, did, they, did they vote on their iPhones? Well, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's not really any, it's like saying, well, so, you know, 51% of people believe that fire is a form of life that, and have a, like the, what is that, the old, I forget the, um, the, the theory of fire that, that predates yeah. physics, but, 
um, I'm being dismissive because that's what socialism deserves. But uh, I think that um, Nancy Pelosi's response was, we're capitalists. I'm a capitalist. We're for capitalism. And, you know, Bill Clinton was essentially a neoliberal. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter was actually performed more statutory deregulation, I think, even than uh, Ronald Reagan. And Ted Kennedy was one of the people leading the charge on that. And JFK, like, cut marginal tax rates and was a, a cold warrior. So we have these, like, and but that's all now feels like history. It's a like JFK is you might as you might as well be talking about Grover Cleveland now. It's mm -hmm. got no bearing on the modern movements inside these parties anymore. So so you know in in the time we have left, let's talk about the future. Let's talk about like what in a world where the two parties are going in bad directions. And, and are being forced there through incentives that are maybe not easy to change. Um, what, what do you see as opportunities for hope? Is it the emergence of a valid third party in the form of the Libertarian Party or something else like a, new, like a liberal party like what they have in the UK? There's the liberals who are not the Tories or, the, or, or labor. Um, mm -hmm. Is it a, a, a resurgence of federalism? Is it a mix of those things? Is there something else? Like, I want to hear what you're, what you're thinking as a project or a, like for the future. So I think you have to have some electoral reforms, first of all. And you probably could get a lot of people behind electoral reforms. Um, for example, ranked choice voting or some other system that would give uh, newer parties or other parties outside of the old parties a chance to compete in ways that are, is difficult for them now. I mean, right now, uh, there are ballot access issues. There are, uh, like in Michigan, we have straight ticket voting too. Um, and- well, What does that mean? Well, straight ticket straight voting ticket is where- voting? Where, um, uh, where you, you pick a party at the top of the ballot and then your vote is cast for everyone in that party. And then you just walk out. So you don't vote, you don't vote for individual members. Um, you can, you can if you want to, but you also can just vote Republican party or Democratic party at the top of the ballot and just walk away. That's it. You're done voting. And people present it like it's some kind of convenience, like, oh, well, we want to make voting easier for people. But actually, its primary effect is to undermine uh, third parties and independent candidates, especially. Right. Because there, are, especially if you're a third party or independent candidate, you might not have a whole slate of candidates. Um, if you're an independent candidate, you don't even have a party. So there's no way for straight ticket voting to benefit them the same way it benefits Republicans or Democrats. It's going to make it difficult for them to win elections. And in a state like Michigan, you might have 60% of the votes cast by straight ticket vote. And that means that um, Republicans or Democrats basically are taking 60% just right off the top. And that leaves only 40% for anyone else who might even have a chance to, um, uh, to, to earn a vote. So, 
we have to get rid of straight ticket voting. For it became an issue in Michigan because people said that not having straight ticket voting means that there will be long lines for voting. Well, there's two flaws with this theory. First of all, if people are going to be long- just taking too much time making this choice. We yeah, got to first speed of all, this thing up. Come on, in and out, in and out. First of all, if you do have long <laughs> lines, if you do have long lines, the correct remedy is to extend the voting hours or have more precincts to vote. Right. That's the correct right. remedy. Right. It's not to make the ballot um, uh, biased against third parties and independent candidates. Second of all, is there anything easier than voting for all one party? Like it says by each name, what party the person's in. So if you want the people who can vote fast are actually the people who would who would vote straight ticket anyways. They're the people who have already made their mind up. They're going to vote all Democrats or all Republicans. Well, what does that take? Like 30 seconds? You just like, here's a Republican, here's a Republican, here's a Republican, here, or here's a Democrat. Here's a, how hard is that? You already made your mind up that you care most about the party affiliation, not the individual candidate. So that's an easy vote. You don't need a straight ticket vote. You can do that one super fast. The people who would like a, a faster way to vote are the people who are thinking about each candidate individually. Unfortunately, there's no way to speed that process up. So yeah, straight ticket voting has no business being in any... Um, electoral system, any voting system, get rid of straight ticket voting. Um, like I said, ranked choice voting, get rid of straight ticket voting. Then you can allow uh, third parties and independent candidates to compete better. And I think that will make a big difference for our system. Uh, but yeah, I've heard ranked choice voting would most likely lead towards moderation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it would... I don't know the exact effects and I, I would want, yeah, it's like hard before, to say before we'd vote on it, I'd want us to, you know, thoroughly research it and study it and, and all that and see where, how, where it's been tried and what impact it's had. Um, but I can assure you in Michigan, which has straight ticket voting, it is probably the hardest. And there are a few States that have it. There's it's like, um, you know, maybe seven, eight States that have straight ticket voting. I don't know what the number is right now, but it's a, it's a low number. For this, uh, in a state like Michigan that has had it um, throughout its history or for, all, for many, many years, um, you have basically no independent candidates or third party candidates win. Like it just doesn't happen. You don't, some of these states, you'll see like um, Minnesota, you'll occasionally get independent winners or Maine, or you, you get some states where you'll see some like unusual things happen. Michigan's never had these kind of unusual things. I've been paying attention to politics for a long time. If someone, if I'm wrong, someone can correct me, but I have never seen an independent candidate win in Michigan or a third party candidate. And it's because we have this ridiculous system where you just vote straight party and, and, and we, we should get rid of that system. But when it comes to the parties, I think, um, I said earlier, the Democrats and Republicans, I think, are catering to a minority of the population. I don't think they're catering to most Americans. I think they reach, uh, they each reach maybe 20 or 30 percent of the population. And um, something like that. And, and so there is room, there is some 40, 50, 60 percent of the population that is open to something else that would consider something else. But um, it has to seem uh, pragmatic to them. 
practical, moderate, and one of the difficulties with libertarianism is that it there there's a perception, at least among people who um, who do think about it. Most people, I think, don't think much about it at all. But among the people who do think about it, there's maybe a perception that it's about no government or some kind of um, radical re-engineering of everything and everyone's going to have the rug pull out from under them and that kind of thing. And it's not that at all. It's not even about, like I said, opposition to government. It's about government in the right place and about understanding um, what a government is and how powers are separated. For example, you might think of your own family as a sort of government and it has certain powers and you might have certain rules in your family that you would accept for a family, but you'd never accept for the federal government and you wouldn't accept for the state government. For example, in my family, we might have a bedtime or you never accept your, even your local government telling you what bedtime is for, you know, for your kids. We've accepted a lot closer to that over the past six months than uh, I I think either of our lives, unfortunately. Right. So it's about understanding what agreed. Yeah. Understood. It's about understanding what government is and what it does when you, when we say um, the federal government shouldn't do X, it doesn't mean that no government should do X. It means the federal government shouldn't do X. And there's a reason for it because the federal government's not very good at doing X, you know? And I think the, the framers of the constitution put a system in place that is really good. It's not perfect, but it's really quite good at um, dividing powers and at setting these sort of boundaries, these sorts of boundaries and limits on what each level of government is is doing and reserving a lot to um, the people in the states. So, you know, I, I think if we could return to that, people would find not that there is um, necessarily less government, but that it's different government. You might have less government at particular levels. You might have more government at a particular level. It's possible that if the federal government is not doing certain things, the local government is doing more things or the state government is doing more things. So it's not necessarily true that in every instance, it's less government. It's about figuring out which government handles it most efficiently, which government handles it best, and which government handles it in a way that maximizes happiness. Because that's the, that's the real goal here, right? To maximize happiness in people's lives. And, um, and we divide powers to maximize happiness. One size fits all it does not maximize happiness. Nobody thinks that. Nobody, yeah, look, at I, how unhappy, look at how unhappy people are with Trump in charge of everything, allegedly. You know? um, and he himself thinks he's in charge of basically everything. Are people happy about it? They're not happy about it. How could it be the same people who say uh, the federal government should be in charge of all these things, but then Trump's in charge, you know, oh, this is a disaster. We have to, you know, like the world's ending. Well, you're the ones who said the federal government should be in charge of everything. Let's divide the powers. Why should the federal government, why should Trump have this power? I don't want Trump to have this power to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's not his job. He doesn't have that power. Maybe Congress should have the power. Or maybe, in a lot of cases, maybe the state should be doing it. Or have you ever considered that maybe a local government or your family should be handling this? Not the federal government. So, yeah. You know. 
it, it is it is this uh the false the, it's a linguistic trick to you know if you're against sort of federal rules in education you're against education itself as a concept right. you know as if um as if it's the only that's the only way to do it um you know what we didn't talk about what many people who are uh um who are watching this would probably think is the elephant in our conversation, which is your run for president and your quick sort of exit from that <laughs> yeah. effort. So, um, let, lest I, uh, <laughs> lest I get charged with the most outrageous, uh, you know, line of questioning to ever be, ignore. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? You know, uh, you know, we worked a little bit together and, and you're on your, some of your elements like your website. And so, um, I was a huge, I was hugely excited about the prospect of voting J Justin Amash in, uh, in November. And so I, I was certainly disappointed. I think a lot of people that are fans of yours were disappointed. What, why, um, why in a time where both sides are pretty unappealing, you know, did you not stick with it? Because you almost certainly would have gotten the Libertarian Party nomination. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know the mechanics yeah, of all I've, that stuff all that well. Yeah, I felt, I, mean, I felt pretty. I felt pretty confident about getting the LP nomination. And in fact, it's it's one of the reasons I um, bowed out when I did, um, because I was so confident I was going to get it. And once I was in, I had to be committed to it. And um, and you know, just just to go back to. The beginning, as you know, um, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. And I had basically decided by around February that this was moving forward. And I stopped campaigning for my congressional seat. I, um, you know, we stopped actively fundraising, we stopped actively campaigning, and we were doing awesome. Like the previous quarter, I had raised more than all 10 candidates in the race combined. So we were doing fantastic in the congressional race. But for those who have been listening to this podcast, I feel like I've been spinning my wheels in Congress. Like um, I've thought about uh, leaving Congress for a while. I've thought about, I thought about being an independent uh, in Congress for a long time before I did it because I could see where it was going. Um, it wasn't going anywhere under our current structure. And so I had decided by February that, yeah, it's time. It's time. Like I was, I was willing to do another term in Congress and I had campaigned for it and all that. And, and nobody loves a challenge more than me. So when I left the Republican Party, it was an exciting challenge. Like, oh, I, I can run for Congress and I can win it as an independent. But I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And by around February, I said, you know, it's, it's time to do it. It's time to run for president, at least put out an exploratory committee for president. And then at the same time that happened, and I was committed to doing it, and I was like, I'm not going back to my congressional campaign. At the same time it happened, coronavirus hit. Yeah. And I couldn't, in good conscience, go back to fundraising for my congressional campaign and campaigning for my congressional seat 
knowing that my heart was really in this presidential exploratory campaign and that I had made up my mind. I'd already decided this is what I was going to do. So I couldn't really turn the fundraising back on for my congressional seat. I had, I'd made my decision. But then I was sort of at the, at the whim of the virus. How was it going to play out? And I knew that I didn't want to announce a presidential campaign at a time when we're dealing with something like this in the early stages. I wanted to make sure my constituents were being taken care of. I wanted to make sure that those who had particular needs were being taken care of. You know, we, we have a lot of constituent services as a, as a member of Congress. People reach out to us for help. And at a time like this, I was like, I need to focus on this. I need to focus on the legislation that's being passed. They're going to spend trillions of dollars and we need to make sure yeah. we're doing this properly. I need to focus on making sure, like I said, constituents are taken care of. And so I just had to put the presidential exploratory committee on hold. So I'm in this limbo state then where I can't really run for Congress because I'd made the decision about what I was doing and I can't really run for president because there's this issue that's sprung up and we need to address it and I need to um, do my job responsibly as a congressman, take care of my constituents, make sure that, we're, that I'm um, legislating for them and, and watching out for them. So I waited and waited and got to the point around the end of April where I felt like, okay, things are a little more under control. This, it's still a mess. People are still in their homes and the campaign will be very unusual, but it's not the same sort of panic that we had in February and March when it was just starting, when people were like, oh, this is kind of like nerve wracking. Like what is going to happen here? Oh, right. It wasn't the same no, it was, panic. I mean, it still feels somewhat apocalyptic, but it was especially yeah. apocalyptic. In yeah, in the early days, March it was like, what's going to happen? Yeah. Right. And so by the, by the very end of April, I was like, okay, I think things are at least um, a little more under control, a little, uh, a little calmer. Now, not, you know, still lots of problems, obviously, but what am I going to do? If you're going to, if you're going to make the leap into an exploratory committee, you got to do it. There's a nominating um, convention for the, for the libertarian party that's in May. So I, I really had to make up my mind either I was going to do it or not going to do it at all. And if I didn't do it, it would have been a l little bit challenging to jump back into the congressional race when I just turned everything off already. So um, I, I made the decision that I was going to move forward and do the exploratory committee. And I really am um, the kind of guy who, when I look at something, I assess it reasonably and responsibly. And I assess that I could not make the impact that I had hoped I could make. In the abstract, I thought there was an opening here. But I think given the delay in launching the campaign, you know, the exploratory committee and, yep. and given the, the unusual environment and the particularly partisan nature of things right now um, with people on the left, especially being so upset about Donald Trump, I just couldn't get the traction I needed to make enough of an impact. I, I didn't want to run for um, president, get 5% or 10% and then, um, 
you know, that's it. Like it, it didn't, that didn't make the, that wouldn't have made the impact that I thought was worthwhile. So I, uh, I withdrew. I withdrew from the race with the knowledge that this was it. That if I withdraw from this race, it's very likely I will um, return to the private sector and I, I won't be involved in, in politics in the immediate future. And that was okay. I'd made peace with it already. I've made peace in February with that decision. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a hard one um, in terms of not going back into the congressional race. People, a lot of people didn't know that the congressional thing was done until the Libertarian Convention was coming up, the state of Michigan convention, and realized, oh, he's not going to be the nominee. He's not seeking the nomination. Um, but that's, that's mostly because I didn't want to make a big show of it. I'm not like, um, I wasn't interested in like a whole like farewell to Justin thing. Like, um, hey guys, I'm, I'm not going to run for Congress and, you know, let's have like, let's all like reminisce about the good old days or whatever. I, this is, to me, <laughs> to me, like, you know, to me, this is the beginning. People do things in their lives for some period of time and then they do something else and that's okay. I don't feel like, um, I can't accomplish what I want to. I will go out. I, you know, I, I, I did this for 10 years in Congress. I feel good about the work I did. I feel very good about how we um, dealt with constituents, taking care of their needs. I feel very good about my commitment to the legislative process. I feel very good about my consistency. I haven't been perfect. There are times when you look back and, on a particular vote and you say, ah, I don't know. There's not too many of those. That's the good news. Most of my colleagues, yeah. most of my colleagues have those every week. I've got, <laughs> I've got well, maybe, a, I've got maybe a few during my ten years where I say like, you know, I could have gone the other way, or maybe I should have gone the other way. And some of that is just experience, or you learn a little more about the thing, or whatever it might be, and you grow. And I feel like this is an opportunity to grow too. I, I feel like this is the beginning of something new. And every time in my life that I've had a new beginning or something, something I was doing, maybe there was a sudden course change um, and it was a little bit unexpected, like maybe this term, you know, a little bit unexpected. I was I wouldn't have guessed that I was going to, you know, right away from the beginning of the term that hey, I am going to run for maybe run for president or not run for Congress or whatever, where there's been a sudden course change like that in my life. I find I have found that something good happens. And so I'm not worried about it. Um, it may not happen tomorrow or the next week or, or whatever, but I feel like this is a beginning, not an ending. And, and so I'm happy about that. Where um, I think we're all excited to see what comes next from you, Justin. I know I am. Um, I think uh, while I lament not being able to, I might maybe I'll write your name in. <laughs> yeah, that, thanks. Um, you know, I lamented but, too. My I wanted my parents to get a chance to vote for me for president too. You know, like again, like I talked about earlier with my dad getting the chance to see me in Congress. You know, it would have been nice to to have my dad get to go to the voting booth and, and vote for me for president. But, you know, it's okay. 
everything doesn't work out the way you you hope and and that's okay how can people uh, keep track of what you're doing next and where can people find you well you can uh, troll me on twitter um at justin amash so just go there and and uh attack me if you'd like or say nice (laughs) things um uh, i i'll get both of it uh every day so um you just follow me on i think twitter is the best place right now to find me um i'm not using facebook as much i found facebook became a, a real mess in many ways um it just uh you know, the, the, the trolling and the rest, it became very difficult um, to even. You have. found Twitter is less of a, you know, troll cesspool yeah, than it's, Facebook. That's they're both, they're both, sort of they're both, <laughs> they're both cesspools in different ways. But I think on, um, on Facebook, the way it's arranged and organized, you get it in a certain way. And on Twitter, it's more like you get one-off comments and, they're they're sort of just like they float away into the ether they're 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 gone you see them and then they move on um so i don't know i i i find twitter is just an easier format to get to get messages across um but they they both have their problems well here's to whatever comes next and i and, and i'm on you taking so much time with me by the way, I'm on Instagram too, but it's, um, I keep it private because all it is, is, um, pictures that I take. So there's nothing on Instagram. If you want to follow me on Instagram, you can, you know, you can ask for a follow, ask to follow me, but all I keep on there is, um, is, uh, pictures that I took with my phone and that's it. Um, it's, it's purely photography and I like it that way. But anyways, thank, thanks yeah. for having me on. It's, it's been fun. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been great, Justin. And uh, here's to advancing the cause and in, in new forms and new ways. Well, I look forward to doing it and and hopefully working with you going forward on some stuff. I, I think, um, you know, uh, as a fellow liberty warrior, uh, I think we can make a big impact on this world. And it doesn't have to be um, through an election this cycle. It can be through a lot of other things. And so we uh, we can make a difference. Here, here. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.